Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. Joining me this week is Politics Home political reporter Eleanor Langford, as well as Conservative Former Minister John Penrose, who this week quit his role as the government's anti-corruption champion over the Partygate saga. We are also joined by Will Tanner, Director of the influential Conservative think tank Onward, and a former Deputy Head of Policy in 10 Downing Street. And really, there's only one place to start this week, obviously. Um, the Boris Johnson having a confidence vote against in his leadership after a number of MPs sent letters in. He obviously won that vote by, he would say, a comfortable majority of 63. But obviously, there's a lot of talk about the fact that 148 of his own MPs voted against him. Um, I just wonder, John, going to you first, what kind of the, the mood was in, in the party post that and kind of what is the mood among some of your colleagues who were annoyed or angry about the things that have happened and what, what kind of things are they looking for to see from Downing Street and Boris Johnson moving forward? So I think the simple answer to the mood is it's been pretty subdued. Um, you know, the, it's been notable that there haven't been you know, mass resignations of ministers and that sort of stuff. So there haven't been extra fuel to the fire, if I can put it that way. So it's been very subdued. Um, and I think also, you know, the, the Prime Minister said he wants a reset. Um, he knows he's got to change and he knows he's got to you know rebuild bridges and and sort the problem out he's you know he's a he's a realist said he wants to do it and so i think people probably want to give him a bit of space to do that there's been some announcements today for example on housing policy um and yesterday was the leveling up bill started its progress through parliament so i think people want to give him a chance to show you know what what the new the new boris is going to look and the new regime is going to look like um and you know goodness knows we we all want him to succeed because actually the government's programme, the levelling up agenda, remains positive, remains popular. And most of us find on the doorsteps that actually the ideas and the manifesto is still moving minds and still moving spirits and still enthusing people. Um, so, so I think people want to, want to you know, uh, wait and give him space and hope he can take the opportunity, which is what he says he wants to do. Yeah. Well, obviously, you've been, with your think tank, has been heavily involved in kind of levelling up over the past couple of years. Obviously, as John said, the bill was back yesterday. Last week's podcast, we had Jake Berry on, uh, chair of the Northern Research Group. And I asked him, you know, can you define levelling up or can Boris Johnson define levelling up in a sentence? And he said, no. But he also said that, that wasn't a problem because effectively it means different things to different people. Uh, and that different people will understand what levelling up means in different ways. But is that not a bit of a problem that it's quite a nebulous kind of policy? And, and how is that going to be measured necessarily by the voters in the next couple of years if there isn't a kind of a structure behind it, if it's not really a definable policy, really? It's a great question. And clearly levelling up does to some degree mean different things to different people. But I actually think the government has a pretty clear definition and has a, had a pretty clear definition about what levelling up means pretty much since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, since his first speech in Manchester uh, in 2019. And that is bringing opportunity to places that have had too little opportunity over the past few decades. Uh, and I think voters instinctively understand that. We do focus groups around the country. We've been uh, in Oldham, South Tyneside, Walsall in the last month or so. Uh, and voters pretty consistently understand what levelling up is. Uh, they think it is a good thing. They are also realistic about how long it will take. They understand that this is a shift that has been going on uh, for a number of decades in terms of uh, regional economic uh, divergence uh, and they uh, recognize that to fix that will take time and concerted effort. I think 
the challenge the government has is actually one of not messaging or not politics, but delivery. Yeah. Uh, it's actually getting on with the job, making the changes and making people feel like changes happening in their place. And if you look at Teesside, what Ben Houchin is doing there, you can start to see that happening and you can start to see the electoral dividends. But that needs to start happening, happening everywhere if the Conservatives are going to stand a chance at the next election. Can I just chip in on that? Because I, I think that last point about delivery is really important. And of course, you know, here we are, we're halfway through the, the, the Parliament. Um, and because of the pandemic, actually, it feels like we're only just being able to begin it now. So it's, it's, you know, it, it's really difficult to move the dial fast enough between now and the general election, um, but not because of anybody's fault. It's because of COVID. But you know, that, that just makes it harder to, 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 to deliver what I think uh, you know, you're rightly saying is, is, the, is the issue. Mm. And there's a lot of MPs I've spoken to this week that have, that word delivery has come up an awful lot, essentially, that actually that's what we talk about policy resets, is like there's housing policy, but there's also this sort of Operation Red Meat that's been talked about, whether there's going to be lots of stuff and perhaps a ratcheting up of the rhetoric with, North, with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, but actually delivery is the, the big thing. You talked about giving the Prime Minister space and time to do that, John, but some MPs think that the Prime Minister is who he is, and this is, you know, that actually some of the strengths that he had in 2019, being able to smash through the old order and that sort of stuff, but they're kind of his weaknesses now as well. And, you know, are, do you think enough of your colleagues think that he has the capacity himself to change and become, you know, you know, what's the thing about uh, campaigning in poetry and governing in prose? Like, <laughs> he, he is more of a poet than a prose writer. You know, is, is he able to do that, do you think? Um, I think? I think everybody wants to see the proof. Um, so so I, I think, you know, people want to give him the, the time to, to show he can do it. Um, I think everybody wants to be persuaded and wants to see it happen. Um, you know, I think only time will tell. Um, but I think if he can do it, uh, you know, then the, the world is his oyster. You know, the, 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 it, we could make real progress. Is there, a, is there enough time, though? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, time is running out before the general election. We're expecting the general election in 2024, and that is very, very fast approaching. They will have to start campaigning long before they actually go to the polls. So is there actually enough time to get that delivery in now it's not that far obviously because of the pandemic but well, uh, can so they actually get things done I, I think i think people do understand that you know the pandemic basically sort of you know um made really big structural reforms that may need to be done to bring opportunity to places that haven't had it people get that 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 was you know you had to sort of you know fight fires during the pandemic um they'll need to be reminded of it of course over the course of the next 18 months two years um, and they'll need to see real progress even if, even though the start was delayed I think if they can't see real progress, which is your point about delivery, um, then that'll be an issue. But you know that's why you know that's why the levelling up bill yesterday, for example, is really important. And there's a whole series of other things that I hope they're going to do, um, and which they said they want to do. Uh, but people will say, well, you know, show me the money, as it were. I, th I think the challenge for the government is it, most governments would say that you do your most radical policy at the beginning, where your political capital is highest, where you've got the most time to deliver. and Especially where actually, with Johnson, an 80-seat majority, there was a big wave of opportunity for that to happen, right? Well, exactly. And yeah. the pandemic slightly curtailed the, the government's ability to do that. And we are entering a period, as you say, two years uh, until another general election, where the government is actually going to have to backload its policies. And it may well have to be more radical than it had previously anticipated in order to start demonstrating real progress on the issues that matter to voters. And I think that is that is difficult. particularly the case, given the headwinds. We've obviously had the pandemic, we've spoken about that, but we've also got the cost of living crisis, we've got rising inflation, we've got 
immigration at unprecedented levels. We've got crime ticking up in a number of different areas. Uh, we've got uh, economic growth flagging, as we heard from the OECD later. The government is facing a huge amount of headwinds. And actually, that increases the premium on radicalism, while at the same time making it more difficult to be radical. So the government is facing real challenges. We shouldn't underestimate that. Um, but again, it comes back to delivery and, and to making sure that you're demonstrating real progress. To yeah, you're right. And I think that's part of what they're looking at. A lot of the front pages on Thursday talk about the idea of an average cost of a tank of fuel going up to £100. Those are things that a lot of governments don't, you know, normal governments don't have to deal with, essentially. But in order to be radical, you kind of need to have everyone pulling in the right, in the same direction and all 359 MPs all facing the, the right way. Obviously, 148 on Monday said that they didn't want to do that. And obviously, there is a, you know, is it then therefore difficult if you're trying to fight fires with your MPs rather than, you know, trying to perform radical policy at the same time. So I think what was very interesting about the vote on Monday was it wasn't an organised rebellion about a specific issue. It wasn't a uh, an attempt to, to kind of initiate a coup in order to bring about a policy shift. It was a widespread, quite disparate sense of discontent amongst Conservative MPs. It's very difficult um, to come to any other conclusion. And I think that actually does give the opportunity for the government to be radical. I think the, I think Conservative MPs actually want radicalism. They want to demonstrate uh, for the government to demonstrate leadership on things like levelling up on NHS reform in order to bring down the backlog and, uh, and ensure the NHS is delivering and, and getting best value from the investment the government's making uh, on schools and opportunity. I mean, these, these are the things that really matter to voters where the Conservative MPs I speak to uh, want to actually see a bit of bold um, leadership from the Prime Minister and his cabinet colleagues. And so I don't think it's the case that a divided party is more difficult to lead into radical territory. I think actually the opposite is the case right now. Yeah, I think because you say that it's um, it's not, the, the rebellion came from all wings of the party, came from all intakes and that sort of stuff. It wasn't as though, you know, it's not as though now although there's not necessarily a policy that will placate all of them, there's not necessarily policies that will anger all of them either. And I, I spoke to some MPs that, you know, this idea of kind of vote strikes and guerrilla warfare and stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, John's pulling a face there. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem like that's very likely, but, no. you know... There's, there's, people like levelling up. You know, right. We, 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 it's, a, it's a good idea and the party's pretty united behind it. Yeah. So that, that's the big difference. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the reason why it, it's an opportunity as well. Yeah. And actually, the biggest, I think the biggest mistake in the last few months has been a series of policies which appear as distractions. So imperial weights and measures is a very good example. Like, it, it may well be that there is kind of latent support for that policy out in the country, but it's never going to win you a general election. And it's actually not very high up on list, the list of voters' concerns. Um, you could make the same argument about things like China for protestation. I'm not necessarily saying these are bad things, but they're not kind of wow policies which are going to win over voters. And so if you want to lead Conservative MPs, I think you need to be bigger and bolder in your policy direction and actually as john says deliver the things that people are pretty united behind like leveling up one of the things i think that has been discussed is whether obviously the the vote under the rules of the 1922 committee uh, it doesn't allow for another vote of confidence in the leader for another year but there's been talk of perhaps change those rules and obviously there's a few, there are the Prime Minister's not necessarily out of the woods yet with the by-elections coming up. Ellie, you've spoken to a lot of MPs this week. What, what's been kind of the mood you found ahead of the, the by-elections and then possibly a, a potential uh, you know, investigation by the Privileges Committee into the, the, the ongoing sort of party gate stuff? I think there is an expectation that uh, Wakefield will not go very well. Um, I was chatting to some MPs yesterday who actually will be there today while we're recording um, and they're expecting that Labour will be taking it by five, six thousand vote majority. Mm. Um, Which I guess sounds like it was a Labour seat for a long, long time. Yeah. There was one in, in 2019. I suppose the difference maybe is the one in Tiverton. That's a 24,000 seat majority. And to that hear is people, the one. People yeah. talk about it possibly going. It seems quite interesting. 
I mean, we had Ed Davey on a couple of weeks ago and he was incredibly confident. He was indeed, He was yes. incredibly confident that he's going to take it. Um, it's a bit of a mixed move amongst MPs. I think some of them think that they could hold it, but the majority think that it's going to go. And I think that's going to be a real test for Boris Johnson is how he responds to those losses if and when they do occur, because that is going to be a really, really big hit to the party. And with the general election so close, it will raise questions about, you know, is he still the electoral asset? Yeah, exactly. Uh, John, you're the MP for Western Supermare. It's just down the road. The just M5. up the M5. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, will you be down in, in, in Tiverton yeah, campaigning? I'm, I'm there next week. Um, right. So, so yeah, lo- looking forward to, to that as well. Um, but I, I, I do think that Will is right, that if, um, if we can start to set out and flesh out more about what levelling up means. It's it, it's not just popular with Conservative MPs. It unites the party brilliantly, um, but it also shows both economic radicalism, you know, creating economic opportunities for everybody, but also social radicalism too. You know, it's 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 about it's about creating the agency, the ability for people to grab opportunities and have opportunities in front of them, which they haven't had in the past unfairly and un- unequally. That's really powerful stuff. It's the kind of it's sort of you know Thatcher reinterpreted forty years later, um, at a time when you know it's clearly necessary in modern Britain to to deal with those inequalities, and it's a properly radical message. So I think if we can you know, really push that that home hard and fast, there's a really good future. I mean, I've, you know, it'll 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 help the party, but the reason it'll help the party is because it it'll help the country first. Yeah, and we can, we'll do well by doing good if I can put put it that way. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just on the by-elections, Alan, I think um, the uh, the interesting thing about the 2019 coalition that the Conservatives assembled was it it was geographically dispersed, but in values and, and kind of policy priority terms, it was actually very homogenous. There was a huge amount of alignment between kind of new working class voters in the North and the Midlands and uh, traditional Conservative voters in the in the South, to use those two, two stereotypes. Um, what's worrying about the two by-elections, if they both go uh, to Labour and Lib Dems respectively, is it exposes both a first-in, first-out problem and a last-in, first-out problem at the same time. The party losing voters on both kind of sides of its coalition. Um, and that is a very, very dangerous place for a, for a party, any party to be, because you end up being reduced uh, to the kind of lowest common denominator in the middle and, and you're kind of losing losing voters to two different parties on either side. And especially when it's clear that the Labour and the Liberal Democrats are parties are... Uh, if not explicitly, implicitly collaborating around electoral pact. So um, I think that is the risk that could be exposed uh, later this month. Um, and uh, and it could be, I think, quite damaging for the for the party unless it can get its act together. Is there, um, it's been put to me by a couple of um, MPs that the circumstances of both these by-elections mean that it's actually, you know, that is why oh, we'll probably lose Wakefield because of why that by-election took place. Uh, and same with Tifton and, and Honiton that, because Neil Parrish resigned under because of watching pornography in the Commons, that would turn voters. Do you think that's a, a fair characterisation? Do you think it, a lot of it is just down to why these MPs had to go? So my personal view is that that will have a uh, an impact, um, but it's not the only thing. Uh, we should certainly not assume that uh, voters' discontent in those two constituencies is down to the individual circumstances of those MPs. Because there's always kind of special circumstances in most in most by-elections. Right? I think, yeah. I think the, the risk is, or the problem is, that it it confirms people's fears about about not just Conservative MPs, actually MPs in general. And I apologise, John, but I was saying the same thing in the Commons yesterday. So, indeed, yeah. uh, in the in the 
kind of allegations of impropriety of any kind do unfortunately underline a preconception that voters already have about politicians. Um, And that will, to some extent, be a plague on all parties' houses, um, but it will be particularly bad for incumbents. Um, And uh, so it will have an impact, but I, I think it would be wrong to say that the party gate scandal and uh, and and kind of wider political issues aren't also having quite a big impact too mm, yeah definitely john obviously you quit your role as the anti-corruption czar do you like that word czar, czar, czar. czar is fine czar. champ is fine champ, okay, fine. Uh, but either way you, you stood down this week can you just yeah. explain a little bit why you took that decision and 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 if so you're talking about an economic radical a radical agenda but obviously the person at the top of government has to implement that and you clearly have concerns over whether his so, so, I mean, probity, if, possibly, you know. Well, I, I, I don't want to sort of, you know, rake over old coals because I, I, I issued a letter at the yeah. time which sort of talks it through. So, so yeah, people can check that if they want to. I, I think that the point is that uh, the, there is this, I, I keep on coming back to it, there's this really positive, exciting and genuinely popular, yeah, and popular in the, the former Red Wall and popular in traditional conservative seats in the South as well, agenda of levelling up. Yeah. Um, so that is that is kind of the the ace in the you know the ace card in the hand um we've got to be able to put that across and we've also got to show people that the concerns about party gate have been fixed yeah um and i think if we can and that that's not easy that last bit that was one of the reasons why i i felt i had to stand down um but if if the pm can do that and therefore we can focus on this really positive agenda, then there really is a big opportunity you know, for the country, for the party, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what's got to happen. Yeah. Um, and it, we, we can, you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to talk about you know, who had beers with whom. Yeah. Um, but actually, the stuff that matters is, can we deliver on lower housing costs to rent or to buy, not just in, in, you know, in, in the Midlands and the North, but also in, you know, in the home counties in the South? How do we do that? Are we doing the right things? Those sorts of central questions um, about you know, what are we going to do about the energy markets? Because you know, how can it be right um, that everyone's telling me and telling you and telling your listeners that the cost of renewables has been falling for five or ten years, and yet none of that is showing up in our energy bills? Now, how, how can that be? How, why, why is that happening and why isn't it fixed? Those sorts of questions are the ones which will actually, I think, in 18 months, two years, decide votes if we've got answers to them and providing we can put the party gate stuff behind and, and demonstrate that we're focusing on what people you know, are worried about. But the, the, that's, a, that's a big if yeah. to start that sentence. But if we can do it, then those are the things we've got to fix. Well, one of the ways, obviously, Johnson tried to sort of move on from the initial Sue Gray report was to bring in this office of the prime minister and change some of the roles, Steve Barclay coming in as chief of staff and all that kind of stuff. But there's now talk of perhaps there's going to be a reshuffle. There was a briefing in the paper suggesting that Jeremy Hunt, potential leadership contender to be brought in as chancellor, which seemed rather fanciful to me. But Ellie, I wonder what you, you kind of made of, of speaking to people about this idea of a of a reshuffle to perhaps bring in some of the critics, you know, to, to actually sort of broaden the, the scope of the government at the moment. Well, there's been a suggestion, one of the people that could be up for, um, you know, for a while seemed a little bit shaky was Oliver Dowden. Some people suggested that they could maybe bring in um, a Red Wall MP, someone that's a little more connected to that side of the party, to try and help unite that side. Because I think that is the side that is the most connected to the levelling up agenda. And they are the ones that are really, really pushing for it. So having someone like that at the helm of the party rather than Oliver Dowden, who is a bit more sort of traditional wing, might help but Mm. a lot of the reshuffle um suggestions have been muted in the last few days i think there's a worry that it will look too unstable 
Yeah. Um, so we will have to wait and see. You we'll know, we shuffle back last September, for example. Yeah, so. yeah, and there, I mean, a lot of it would also would have been pushed by resignations, which you know we didn't get the wave of them that we were expecting in the end. Mm. Um, so yeah, there is definitely a thought that bringing in somebody from the red wall or from the newer intake might help. Uh, unite the party a little bit more. Do you think personnel changes, uh, you know, are necessary as well as sort of policy changes? You talk about delivery is getting people in. I heard someone say that, you know, Johnson is a very good chief executive, but he needs a chairman there with him to help him push through that stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know. What do you I, think? Um, the reshuffle speculation is Westminster's favourite party game. <laughs> um, everybody likes to likes to you know, speculate and gossip endlessly about yes, it. Yes, of course. Um, uh, I, I, I'm perhaps unusual. I... I, I really, who, who he wants to, in fact, I was saying this in, in the Commons the other day, who the Prime Minister wants to put in his or her cabinet um, is, up, is up to them. Yeah. People will judge them much more on have they, have they delivered. And I you know, genuinely, I, I want this to work. Yeah. Um, so so if, whatever he's got to do to, to, to get to move the dial in the next two years, um, uh, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my view on this is that I, th- I think Boris Johnson should reshuffle his cabinet and I think he should bring in uh, people from different wings of the party, but I think he should do that specifically with a view to succession planning. Actually, right, and, that, and that's a very uncomfortable thing for a prime minister to do. It was something I thought Theresa should have done after the election in 2017, which she, she didn't do because, well, because of a fear of, uh, of instability and, yeah. and being perceived as or, or a perception that she was too politically weak at the time. I actually think she would have been politically stronger as a result of it. And I think it would have calmed nerves within the Conservative Party to have a, a younger, more diverse and more uh, intellectually robust discussion within Cabinet, actually. And there are fantastic talents on the backbenches or in the junior ministerial ranks, especially from the 2017-2019 intakes, yeah. um, uh, who have never really had a chance at um, senior ministerial office and I think could do a really good job um, and that would be a sign of strength for the prime minister if he did that it wouldn't be a sign of weakness it wouldn't be him capitulating it would actually be him saying i actually want to to represent the future of the party and unite as he talked about on tuesday morning rather than to further retrench and i think the biggest risk for the prime minister and this is a personal risk for him and a, and a party risk for the conservatives in general is that it retreats into itself mm. and it talks to its own uh, constituency rather than to the country and to the broader public um, and so i think a reshuffle could be an opportunity to do that it's, it's interesting because Johnson's perhaps been against having this kind of cabinet of all the talents previously and the suggestion that he doesn't like tall poppies and that sort of stuff. And and whether, you know, you talk about succession planning, I remember the sort of fevered speculation. I think David Cameron, he gave a, a metaphor about Weetabix. Do you remember after the 2015 election, he said that electoral terms are like Weetabix, two is better than three. Like, you know, three is too many, essentially. And that suddenly it kind of set everyone running. Oh, he's not going to run again. And so when's he going to hand over to George Osborne and stuff? It is it's quite difficult, I think, to, to be able to do so. And, and I think, you know, there was, it was only sort of less than a year ago we were hearing briefings that Johnson wanted to run for 10 years, wanted to, you know, that he was going to, you know, he was going to, what was that phrase in the, a piece that he was going to squat a, like a toad over British politics for the next decade? It feels a very long time away from that. So I guess it's kind of hard to maybe to, you know, to, to make those sorts of plans for the future. But so perhaps, and, and, and clearly um, uh, the cabinets that he has created so far have not been uh, representative of all wings of the party. But I would say that, I mean, Margaret Thatcher brought in uh, MPs from all different wings mm. of the Conservative Party and actually valued the intellectual debate that that brought to the decisions the government was was making. I think it is a sign of enormous strength uh, to be able to do that. Um, and uh, it would lead to better policy and potentially better delivery as well. Interesting thought that, Will. I mean, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, if you talk to Ken Clark, who was in Thatcher's cabinet, 
Um, and he said he he and he said he and Margaret used to have the most ferocious arguments. Yeah. Um, but but she, she liked it. Yes. Um, and and fed off it. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I found that incre- uh, really fascinating from someone who was there and in the room. Yeah. And I and you know I, I don't think they were necessarily from the same wings of the party at all. No. But but you're right. That dynamic was clearly very powerful. Indeed. In, in and I get so, I get so frustrated by people saying that we just need more consensus in British politics. We don't, we need the opposite. We need more adversarialism and but more disagreeing well. Yeah. And we need we need the ability to have robust debates about things that really matter, rather than the kind of constant refrain to the lowest common denominator, the thing that's going to appeal to the most people all of the time. Yeah, I think there's been perhaps a drift maybe in the past decade towards sort of more presidential style of of government. You know, that cabinet. There's often a feeling that cabinet is there just to rubber stamp a lot of stuff. I know that perhaps happened with COVID. There wasn't really a chance to have big, long debates about about things necessarily had, had to get done. But it does feel as though, you know, gone are the days of the five-hour cabinet where they sort of thrash out stuff. It seems as though, you know, we get briefed stuff in the lobby and then it goes to the cabinet to be rubber stamped. But it's already been briefed that it's happening. So it doesn't feel as though necessarily there is that discussion within within cabinet. So I think the biggest problem with the cabinet is it's leakier than a sieve. Um, and, and so the ability to yes. have robust discussions is just impossible. Yeah. Uh, it's just not there. And I, I know of people who have arrived in cabinet, been told by previous or, or existing cabinet ministers not to say anything in cabinet because it will be in the newspapers the next day, which is just an extraordinary state of affairs. This is meant to be the top decision-making making meeting in the government. Yeah. Uh, and it is clearly not working. And it becomes performative yeah. rather than um, uh, executive. And I think that that is a real problem. That's actually just one of the things that's happened in the last couple of weeks has been talk of tax cuts. And there's been clearly briefings from those within cabinet who want to see more tax cuts to try and sort of push forward. I was going to ask you, John, what do you, tax cuts, where do you stand on that? There's lots of talk about cuts to VAT, whether that's a kind of a short-term way of getting money back in people's pockets. Um, obviously, the, the Treasury is taking in a lot more money in VAT receipts because of the high price of fuel and that sort of stuff. You know, is that a good way of fixing those short-term problems with, with the cost of living to sort of say, right, well, this is what we're doing now and we're looking in the future to maybe look at further things down the line? Yeah, so, so I mean, this, this is where the, there are two warring bits of the Tory soul right. um, uh, in conflict with each other because... Every Tory worth their salt with enough red blood in their veins loves a tax cut, right? I mean, and, and, and so we should. Um, but we're also the party of sound money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've got some very important fiscal rules. And for, for understandable and good reasons, the national debt's gone through the roof during the pandemic because of all the furlough schemes and all those things, which were necessary, but not, not a sustainable long-term answer at all. So Rishi Sunak... And, and Boris have got to bring the public finances back under control. That means you can't carry on splurging money everywhere and you can't carry on borrowing. Um, but I still think there's some opportunities for um, tax cuts. And the question is where you, where you do them. Yep. And you've also got to be really careful um, because at the moment, for the first time in you know, 15, 20 years, inflation is ticking up. Yeah, and, and an awful lot of that's caused by outside factors like Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. But it is nonetheless happening. Um, and so if you're not careful, do a tax cut the wrong way and you just f- put fuel on the fire and you make inflation worse. And that's really bad for pensioners and, and all sorts of other people too. Um, so I think there are opportunities, but we've got to be careful that any tax cuts we do, A, help people with you know, the cost of refi- refueling the car or with, their, with their, their, their gas and electricity bills, for example, um, but also that they need to drive growth. And so I, I think, I think there's an opportunity, if um, if they're so minded, to sort of come, sort of channel their inner Nigel Lawson, um, and and to to try and simplify the tax system, yeah. close a lot of loopholes, have simpler, lower taxes, um, and that also drives growth. It drives productivity. It just means that people are 
if you're if you're in business and you're a wealth creator, you are able to just focus on your on your customers and delighting them rather than working out what's going to be most pleasant for the taxman and uh, and and will reduce your tax bill. Because actually, if it's if it's all simple and low, the opportunities and the loopholes just aren't there, and you might as well just get on with focusing on your customers. So I, I think there's a big opportunity there to be quite radical um, and to drive growth, but it ain't easy. Um, and and particularly it ain't easy given the need for sound money as well. So I agree with everything that John said, and he's very, very sensible on all of this. Um, the only thing I would say is that... It's a consensus, too much consensus. Indeed. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, but the area where I do think there's an opportunity is actually VAT. So a, right. a VAT cut would be a deflationary measure, um, actually with quite significant implications if you go back to the 1980s and the, and the kind of um, the discussions that are happening in government then and the estimates. Uh, the, the idea that a VAT cut could support not just households with their finances but also have an overall effect on on inflation i think is is quite a kind of sound principle so i wouldn't be surprised if the government ended up doing something on vat in the autumn in the autumn statement but i would also i'd be a bit cautious about um large uh certainly unfunded um tax cuts um uh, more generally especially as an e-jerk reaction because i think there is a complete failure to appreciate the economic uh, hardship that is approaching us uh, in Westminster at the moment. Um, uh, if this gets as bad as it could get, then uh, it will get very, very bad indeed. And uh, and I don't think I, I actually think Rishi Sunak is one of the few people who has been thinking and warning about this for some time. But very, very few politicians, I think, um, uh, are engaged with the the kind of cataclysmic effect that could have on personal finances, and therefore acting too quickly without the right information at your disposal could be damaging. Can I just follow up with that? I, I think Will's right about that. But that means actually that some of the answers to these problems aren't in the Treasury. They are in, for example, the Department for Business and, and, and Energy and Industrial Strategy. So you know, I, I mentioned earlier on about why is the falling cost of renewables not showing up in our energy bills. That's something which Kwasi Kwarteng, if he can reform the energy markets in a pro-competition, pro-business way, could get those lower, those lower prices feeding through and you could reform the energy markets quite fast. I mean, yeah. it, it would take months, but it, but it's, it's not. You can do it an awful lot faster than building a new nuclear reactor, for example. So it's something which will make a difference to us all quite quickly if it can be done. So it, it will is right about the treasury, but it isn't just the treasury. You know, if 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 um, if Rishi is required to carry all the burden, that won't be enough. And he, and he shouldn't be asked to, is other people have got to step up and well, do the although thing Although saying too. that, you talk about adversarial politics, obviously there's a bit of a, a row between the Treasury and Bayes over the windfall tax, we saw Kwasi Kwarteng this week, effectively say he didn't he, he didn't back it, even though he's the government is having to. I just wonder if that, you know, if, again, speak to Jake Berry last, last week, he was saying that the, the Treasury, when he was a minister, was, was a real block on things. They had this sort of automatic veto on things. And it's whether, whether is the Treasury... Is, is it able to prize its hands off a lot of that stuff to be able to allow the, you know, other departments to do that stuff? Well, no, but, but, but my point is that you can do an awful lot of these supply-side changes, yep. um, like reforming the energy market. Yep. That, that, um, you, that doesn't require more taxpayers' money. Yep. Um, you can reform um, social opportunities um, through changes to either preschool or, or FE and HE, um, and just use the existing money in a different way. Or change the planning law to allow more houses. Exactly right. Um, so there's a whole slew of supply-side changes, both social and economic, which doesn't cost the taxpayer a bean, um, and therefore the Treasury ought to be quite comfortable with, particularly if it helps drive growth, um, and particularly if it helps levelling up and social opportunities as well. Um, and and, and you know, I, I want the Treasury 
to have control of the of the taxpayers' money. Thanks very much, because yeah, you know, it, it's it's your and my money and your listeners' money, and we we don't want it splurged around unless it's really going to pay. Um, but there's a whole load of stuff that has to happen outside the treasury, which doesn't cost very much, but could be really really major in its impact on all of us and on its impact on on levelling up. Um, and if we keep on coming back to tax cuts, yes, that's a necessary, helpful. You know, don't get me wrong. I mean, if, if we can do that, I'm, I, I'm all in favour. But if we only focus on that and we don't talk about these other opportunities, then we are never going to be able to move enough stuff fast enough to make the difference. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But you can read more on all the biggest Westminster stories at politicshome.com. And keep up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of our website. Thanks so much to our fantastic guests, John Penrose and Will Tanner, and to my colleague, Anna Langford. Our editor this week has been Laura Silver. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter, at Politics Home, or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend, and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.